welcome back to another edition of Food for Thought, a bonus show of the Pipes Magazine radio show. And thank you to our sponsors, Missouri Meerschaum, SmokingPipes.com, Cornell and Deal, and Savinelli Pipes. We're able to keep these coming for you. And this time we're kind of going into a hobby that I know I know a little bit about, and it's always fascinated me. But we're talking about uh, watches. We're talking in particular about vintage watches. We're talking really cool old Swiss watches and all others. And joining me is somebody that I I followed on YouTube and love the stuff they do. It's uh, Christian, who is the curator of Theo and Harris, and the uh, and sometimes the host on the. Uh, on the YouTube videos for Theo and Harris. Christian, welcome to the show, and uh, thanks for coming on. Brian, thanks so much for having me. All right, so first of all, um, you're you're kind of a young guy to be involved in vintage watches. Uh, it, this Was this a passion that has turned into a bit of a business for you? Yeah, absolutely. So, so I'm 24, and the business is five years old. So I started the business, uh, you, know, uh, you know, as soon as I turned, uh, as soon as I turned you know, 19, uh, yeah, it, it, and I was interested in watches. I would say for maybe two years prior, three years prior, obviously at varying you know degrees, but uh, really, it, watches were probably the first medium that I picked up, and you know, as far as especially reading at the time, you know, the watch, the watch, you know, uh, content space was was all you know you know writing it was all it was all journalism uh, whether it was yeah. news or historical kind of lookbacks but it was all writing and I had never been you know really much of a much of a reader so you know in reflection I said to myself one day wow I'm reading more now than I've ever read before uh, it's still not my favorite medium to consume but it must, it must say something you know <laughs> about my <laughs> about my passion for you know for this medium and, and that, that was it I was high school and I fell in love do you? I, I'm sure you've talked about this in some of your videos, but do you remember the the first real watch that you got and and why you got it? Yeah. So there are two answers to that. So the, the first, the first quote unquote real watch, I would say, is just analog, right? It was, it was an analog watch. It was a a swatch from the 2004 Greek Olympics. Um, I was I was nine years old, and my mom and dad gave it to me uh, for my birthday, right? and I remember feeling like that watch uh, made, made me a big boy, right? That made me an adult, you know? And I loved the way that felt. I, I was always kind of, you know, uh, a kid that wanted to be older, that wanted to be an adult, so I felt like it really made me fit in. Uh, and I remember everyone, all the, all the other adults at school, everyone being impressed that, you know, being impressed <laughs> that I had an analog watch, you know? And uh, so I loved the way that felt, and I really wore that watch quite regularly uh, up until, you know, later in middle school and whatever it might have been. And then, uh, you know, my, my passion for watches did not necessarily, uh, you know, develop, you know, directly from that. There was certainly a break in, in you know, phase. Uh, but then in high school, um, I, I'm sorry, I was in college. I, I was really you know, reading a lot about vintage Rolex and vintage Omega from the 1950s, 60s. And I was, I was in a, a store and I, I, you know, the store had a collection of vintage watches, uh, you know, particularly Submariners and Datejust. And I was actually with my mother and, and I was telling her all these facts about the Rolex Datejust, and you know it was it was meant to celebrate the anniversary of the company, and how interesting that was that you know now companies celebrate anniversaries by you know just you know whether it's releasing something in a different color 
But this time, this company actually released a brand new, you know, like incredibly interesting, complicated at the time, uh, you know, watch. And and she said, wow, like you're speaking about this so passionately, you know, you you ought to have one. You know, you, if anyone deserves one, you know, it's, it's you for that reason. So that was the first time that I said, okay, maybe I'll actually spend at this time, like all of my savings on a watch. Uh, and just a month later, that's what I did. I bought a Rolex Datejust. Wow. <laughs> Boy, yeah. I, that, yeah, I, yeah, and to know all about them before you bought them, I mean, that's, you know, that's just amazing to me in, in the first place. Most people walk in and yeah. go, yeah, that's a Rolex. I know about that company. I'll buy one of those. Uh, yeah, I mean, I had I had never even considered buying you know anything really expensive at the time. I was I was you know eighteen going on nineteen. Uh, you know, obviously I didn't have a job, so I didn't really have money. I was babysitting a little bit, so that's how I saved up a little bit of cash. But uh, I never even considered being in the market for it. Uh, so you know, it just kind of happened <laughs> one day. So here we are, five years later. Do me a favor and give me your definition of what is a vintage watch. So a vintage watch, you know, it simply is a, a, a watch, you know, a watch that came as a product of a different era, a different generation. Now, vintage watches most typically are associated with the 1950s through the 1980s. That being said, I think that there are watches from the late 90s that are still considered, in my eyes, vintage, even though they're just, you know, 20 years old. And that and that would be because the the style has changed or moved on from it. Exactly. Okay. Exactly right. I mean, you know, you look back at Seinfeld and watching watching Jerry Seinfeld with his bright wings, and that wasn't so long ago, you know. But they're such a different style, and they represent such a different era. So I, I look at them as vintage. If someone is interested in a vintage watch or getting, you know, acquiring their first one, what do you think they need to know? The first thing that I say, you know, and obviously a lot of people that are getting into, you know, watches, they get very excited and they want to, you know, they want to get one immediately, right? They want to go and spend that, spend that you know, X amount of dollars ASAP. And my biggest advice to them first is, hey, I know you want to watch, take a breather, take a step back. You know, how much do you know about this? Meaning how informed is your purchase, you know, going to be? Because when you buy your first, anything really important, vintage watch in this you know, instance, it's really a special moment. And I've seen so many people that jump into things so quickly, you know, and are kind of uneducated, and they end up regretting that first purchase. One, you, you, you know, obviously it costs money, so that's that, that certainly of note. But two, you miss that opportunity to bond with something. So, so yeah. my best advice is, hey, you know, read and watch content, right? Understand the history of brands and what connects you. Uh, understand, you know, different styles and what really fits into your life. I really don't do sport all that often, so I don't really wear sports watches. <laughs> I wear more yeah. traditional dress watches. Uh, that just fits my style a lot better. And if you asked me that same question five years ago, I probably wouldn't have given you such a clear-cut answer. You mean you're not diving to a thousand feet all the time and need a and need a submariner? <laughs> yeah, exactly right. I mean, I want the, the the world of dress watches is, is a slippery weird slope because you know it, 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 first of all a vintage date just at the time. So this is 1960s, 1970s. These were 36 millimeter watches that at the time were considered uh, basically the sportiest dress watch you could buy. Right? Yeah. Sure, you could wear it with a suit. 
but really this was you know that this was very you know rugged in many ways as opposed to a paddock of the time which was strictly a dress watch your grandfather would buy right so if you <laughs> yeah. asked me at the time you know hey you know are you a are you a dress watch guy i would have said uh, i don't know right but then you try on your first dress watch, or you try on your first Cartier, or your first, you know, really, really old Rolex, and, and you know, you don't know until you try. You know what I mean? So that's yeah. kind of how I went down that slope in finding my style. So it's really similar to, I mean, it, it is really similar, and I know this, but uh, it's really similar to pipes and pipe tobacco. You want to get as much education before you make that first purchase to figure out what style you are. Uh, and then you want to do the research into the brands and see which one appeals to you more. Um, are there right. are there pitfalls when you're when you're ready to purchase? What do you think some of the pitfalls are that you need to watch out for? Well, I, I think that you know there there are things that people are afraid of. You know, with vintage, they they, they believe that. Uh, because the watch is, you know, is old, that it is lesser, that it is the cheaper way of getting a Rolex. Uh, that's that's one of the common misconceptions. People say, well, why would I buy a you know, used Rolex when I can buy a new one? But in reality, you know, vintage Rolexes uh, can be far more expensive than new ones. You know, you don't buy a vintage Rolex because you're too cheap to buy a new one. Yeah. You, know, you buy a vintage Rolex because it is different and it appeals to you, you know, more or in a different way than a modern one. So that's to me one of the biggest, you know, mistakes that I see, you know, new people uh, making. Do uh, is there concerns over the durability of the of the watch and the movement in it because it is Absolutely. so old? People feel that way a lot. I hear that a lot, but the, the reality is. You know, if you're buying a, a proper watch, meaning when I say proper, I mean a watch that's coming from a reliable source, a watch that's been serviced, a watch that a dealer like myself or, or like some of my friends and colleagues uh, stand behind, then there really are no worries at all about about the, about durability and wearability and uh, will this watch keep time? You know, I, I just saw, I just got an email just yesterday, and I guess everyone's nitpicky and they can be in their own right. Uh, obviously, you're spending a lot of money, but a vintage Rolex, for argument's sake, you know, after service, really typically can keep time, you know, in, in between minus four and six seconds a day, right? Yeah. To me, that is enough, right? I'm, I'm perfectly, you know, okay with being minus four plus six seconds late to a meeting. Uh, you know, that being <laughs> said, I have clients that really do, uh, you know, really do, don't appreciate that. And they want plus one minus one or plus two minus two. And, you know, so if you're looking for that, maybe vintage isn't the route you go. But, uh, but, if, but if minus four plus six seconds a day is within an acceptable accuracy for you, then there's really no reason why vintage shouldn't be on your radar. And that's a good thing. Can you just explain that? Because there is a difference between like a, a, I mean, a quartz Timex watch at Walmart right now is really a, a more precise timepiece than a mechanical timepiece, correct? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, quartz watches, digital watches, you know, are always more accurate. You know, they're keeping, they're keeping time in many instances between seconds a year. Uh, so, so you really can't compare the accuracy. Uh, really, where you get into the difference in value, because, the, you know, the, the common misconception would be, okay, well, why wouldn't, why wouldn't the more accurate watch be more expensive? Uh, well, that's because, you know, very simply, craftsmanship, right? ingenuity, uh, 
architecture. When you're buying a fine watch, uh, let's say, uh, like I said, a Rolex, you can go with brands like Patek or Audemars Piguet. Um, actually, Audemars Piguet is a really good example. Uh, when you buy an AP, particularly a Royal Oak, you're not just buying, you know, the timekeeping. In fact, it's one of the last things you're buying. Uh, although it is, you know, hyper accurate, you know, what you're really looking into is, is the finishing. Right? The fact that, you know, a team of artisans, or in many instances, you know, one artisan sat there and hand cut and polished the entire watch. Something that, one, so few people are even capable of doing, even professionals are incapable of doing. And number two, even for that person who is capable, it takes hours upon hours. It takes, and it takes a lifetime of practice. So, so that's really what you're, quote unquote, like buying into. It's not just timekeeping. Right. It's the way the time is kept. Well, and the other and the other thing when you're looking at a vintage watch like like an AP or something like that, you're you're buying into a piece of history that you know a a, a Timex quartz once it's run its course, you throw it away, you buy a new one, you know. But this one can be handed down to the next generation too. Exactly right. Exactly right. And, and, and I see that all the time. I mean, uh, and when they're not handed down, it's just, uh, you know, it, it's me buying someone else's watch that otherwise been handed down. Yeah. Are there any other brands that you like the, that are just a simple three-handed dress watch besides uh, besides Rolex, which everybody knows? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, there is particularly, you know, today, right? Uh, you know, if you're going to go into, into, you know, modern watchmaking, there are so many options. I would say one of the most, you know, powerful value props is Grand Seiko. Uh, this is a watch that, uh, that the brand founded in the early 60s. Uh, and, and from their foundation, I think it was 64, uh, the brand, you know, was really dedicated to delivering a level of quality that even wasn't being delivered by Rolex. Uh, this watch, while not as famous as so many Swiss brands, it comes from Japan, uh, they were really delivering more value. And that kind of remains true until today. Alternatively, if you want to go to Germany, you have Nomos, which is a terrific brand uh, in the in two to $5,000 range predominantly. Uh, yeah, there, there are a ton of options for, for, new, you know, for new buyers. If you're going to go vintage, I recommend Omega. By under under fifteen or seventeen hundred dollars, between a thousand and seventeen hundred, you can own a, you know a watch from nineteen fifty five that is you know, virtually brand new, right? Running within manufacturer specifications, you know, meaning accurate between you know two and five seconds a day, and and it's just a, a beautiful piece of history. So there are a ton of options. And the and Omegas are you know still made today and using some of the same movements that they were using back then. Yeah, I mean, Omega, Omega is a, you know, a company that actually has become more uh, famous and, and more uh, luxurious than it ever was. So Omega is a terrific example of a brand that uh, is, is a big value prop in the vintage market. <laughs> and Omega's vintage Speedmasters have a soft spot in my heart because that's the watch that went to the moon with, uh, you know, with the Apollo program. Absolutely right, you know, and uh, it's it's a, a piece of history that that they've respected until today. Meaning they haven't, you know, they haven't perverted it. You know, they haven't, uh, you know, they haven't lost touch with their roots, and and that's beautiful. And talk us through the the difference between a so a three handed watch just tells time, it tells the hours, minutes, and seconds, 
And then yep. like the like the Speedmaster that we were just talking about, that's got a chronograph that's a separate timing device. Is that you know just kind of talk us through that and maybe some of the maybe some of the complications and issues that may arise yeah. from owning one. So there are so many complications, you know, in wristwatches. So you have simple time only. You have a chronograph, which is a timing device. Uh, typically, it, you know, it does vary. Some chronographs only count up to 60 seconds, uh, like Omega's Chronostop, which is a, a racing watch. Uh, you've got watches, the chronographs that measure up to 12 hours, right, so of elapsed time, which is a wonderful thing. Uh, then if you want to move away from just the timing, you have calendar complications, right? Uh, there are watches called perpetual calendars that actually account not just for the time and the date, but also for, for leap years, keeping the, 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 you know, the, 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 the date accurate, not just all year, but again, <laughs> even accounting you know, for the leap year. It's unbelievable how complicated these things can go. And, and sometimes they're not as, as useful uh, uh, in, in the traditional you know, sense or in the modern sense. Uh, you know, you've, got, you've got a minute repeater. Right, which is a, a terrific example of just the most uh, maybe opulent complication you can <laughs> buy, uh, or at least at least in the family of opulent complications. So a minute repeater typically uh, just says that you know, the, the, the time right with seconds, uh, and and you have this little slide on the side of the watch on the side of the case, which is basically invisible to the you know to the to the normal person. But when that slide is activated, you actually get the movement uh, that chimes the hours uh, and minutes. Right? And the reason for this was before there was the invention of luminous material like tritium or like radium, um, you know, watchmakers wanted to invent a way to tell time in the dark. So you've got this watch that actually chimes. It's beautiful. Today, useless, but stunning. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but it's like having a little grandfather clock on your wrist and the, and the yeah. chimes go off when you tell it to, not every 15 minutes. Exactly right. It's amazing, and <laughs> and once you get really into it, you know different brands. The the, the chi they chime differently. There's different sound. Uh, some some sounds are, are 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 colder, and some sounds are warmer. It's amazing. Yeah, and 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 then the complication that I like that I think is the most useless of all is the moon phase because none of us navigate at night by the moon anymore. Yeah, exactly right. Uh, I was just talking to a to a, uh, a friend of mine who owns uh, who owns an Omega Moon Phase, and he was talking about his pension for the Moon Phase and his appreciation for it, and and that was based in you know historically how his family had come from, from farmers and how they knew you know to to go when they could go out on their on their property because the moon would properly light the paths, you know, and that, again, <laughs> totally, almost completely useless today, but still hysterical. Yeah, and in reality, we've got all that on our smartphones right next to us, but when you look at a watch on your wrist and you're like, oh, it's going to be a full moon tonight, yeah, um, <laughs> but still fun. Yeah, um, and it's funny, you know, a, a lot of this comes down to, you know, we really aren't, uh, at least I, if most people that I know, right, don't look at our phones in, in Marvel. Like maybe maybe our, you know, older people that, you know, they've never seen phones before, that might be fine. But most people today take this technology for granted because it is so mass-produced and there's nothing uh, artisanal about it, right? Uh, so although a lot of these complications are either, you know, useless or they are totally antiquated compared to our you know, te their technology counterparts, 
we marvel at them, right? And, and that's kind of what life and, and luxury is about, right? Having having the opportunity, you know, if you can afford it, uh, to to marvel at this at this you know mechanism, right? and that's really yeah. what this hobby is about. Yeah, I can't see anybody getting their Apple Watch 4 or whatever generation they're up to now and after two years of wearing it say, well, I'm going to hang on to that and in 15 years I'm going to give it exactly to my son right. when he graduates from high school. Of course. Yeah. It's going in a bin because it's garbage. I mean, you know, yeah. I, I tell you, forget four years. You know, uh, 15, 16 months after getting a new phone, my, my phones are garbage. You know, the, the, everything goes to crap. I mean, whether it's the camera or whether <laughs> Apple's actually slowing down my phone which has happened you know they've been sued for it and they've lost i mean it's not yeah. so that's why to me it's such it's such a false comparison all right let, let's go back to the stuff that 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 we actually love that you deal with so any of these any of these complications that we talked about they were all invented in the 40s and 50s and you know the 1940s and 50s they were all available in watches they're but if you buy a watch with a complication, that does make it more expensive to purchase and it makes it more expensive on the service range because every one of these watches mm -hmm. is going to need some sort of service on a, you know, 5, 10, 15 year basis, right? Exactly right. And in most watches, it's common practice to, you know, one, keep a very well, close eye on them because although they are durable, you know, they deserve our attention. But Every five to ten years, a watch, you know, does need maintenance. Yeah, and that maintenance may include just a cleaning and re-oiling and timing in, set. In most, so. in most cases, all, all the service needs is a, is a disassembly of all the parts by, by an expert, uh, a cleaning of all those parts, and a reassembly and then timing. You know, if something is broken, which does happen, and that can be replaced, which when you're dealing with major brands like Rolex or like Omega or so many brands, uh, parts are, are very easy to come across. Um, this isn't a problem. When you're dealing with very obscure watches that are, that are you know, uh, independent or made by, you know, micro-manufacturers, it becomes difficult. But really, 99.9% .9 of watches in the world, very easy to service. Yeah, and let, let's go back a little further because I know from from my education before I started buying real watches, uh, when you get into some of the vintage market, a lot of those movements were made by two or three movement companies, and then the watch manufacturer fit them into the case. Yeah, exactly right. I mean, and, and that's another big common you know, misconception. People think that even the most famous and prestigious watch manufacturers always made their own movement. Not true. Um, Patek Philippe, which is looked at as, you know, the, the kind of king of watches, you know, yeah. the most uh, prestigious, the richest brand. Um, even Patek Philippe outsourced movements in many situations. Uh, you know, one of their most famous watches is called the Nautilus. Um, and, and the Nautilus was actually powered by a movement that was manufactured by a company called Jaeger LaCoultra, who is, while still famous, nowhere near as popular or as, <laughs> or as you know, renowned uh, as Paddock. So, you know, it, it, it was common practice then, and there's really no reason why it shouldn't be now. Well, and even the Rolex Daytona had two different movements supplied to it until, what, 20 years ago when they finally, when Rolex yeah. finally made their own movement? Yeah, I mean, the Rolex Daytona was powered by, you know, on, on, on its base, the Zenith El Primero. It was, it was modified, but, that, but it's still, you know, on its base, the Zenith El Primero. And there was nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with it. Now people look down upon, you know, the idea that movements are, you know, manufactured by other companies. But there's nothing wrong with that. 
Yeah, and we're just talking vintage here because the, the new market's easy. You go out and you buy what you want and you try to get the best deal for it. But when you're looking at some of the older pieces, you know, you really need to you need to look inside and see what's in there and understand that, you know, I can get this movement in this watch or yeah, even with, with the example of the El Primero movement that was used in the Daytona, it was used by Zenith and their watches, and then for a while they couldn't come to the U.S., so they put it under the Movado name. Yeah, absolutely. The, 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 the Datatron, Datron, uh, I forget how it's pronounced, but yes, exactly right. You know, and, and, and they made a ton of money doing that. You know, doing that. Yeah, it was a, it was a great, it was, you know, it's white labeling. It's still common practice in many industries, but now in the watch industry, it's kind of looked down upon. Yeah. Um, how, so in addition to selling watches, you also do, you also provide service on watches and at the time we're recording this, I, I'll be honest with you, I've got one of my watches on my way to you. So, yeah. <laughs> so not only, yeah. not, only am I, uh, not only am I having you on here to talk about vintage watches, but I'm trusting you with one of my watches already. So yeah. <laughs> there's yeah. an endorsement for anybody because you know, <laughs> off it went. Um, finding somebody that, is, that can do the service on your watch correctly and not rape and pillage your wallet is a big part of owning a vintage watch, right? It, it, it is. And, and that's the, one of the biggest mistakes I see people make. You know, they're, they, you know, they don't really provide proper maintenance for their watch. Uh, watchmaking is proper watchmaking is in many ways a, a, a dying art. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there really is not a great infrastructure for watchmaking schools. And, you know, that's largely because, one, it is, you know, an unpopular thing to do, but, two, because a lot of watch brands don't really pay their watchmakers all that well. So a lot of the best watchmakers, you know, in, in America, uh, and, and by extension in Europe and everything, you know, they go independent, and they start to work for themselves. And they would rather service uh, companies like mine or, or like some of my colleagues because, you know, they can actually own their own business. And as opposed to making, you know, a fraction of, of what uh, they're billing at, you know, or what the companies are billing, they do it themselves. So the biggest thing, that, you know, one of the biggest things you can do is really you know, know a good watchmaker. Um, and a lot of people try to teach themselves how to do it. And you've got a lot of local guys that they say, oh, I've been doing it for 30 years. And I hate to, you know, rain on anyone's parade. But to me, it, it's just too expensive to not have formal training. Uh, and I'm so not a formal training guy. I mean, you can do <laughs> yeah. business without a business degree. I, 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 that's what I do. Uh, you know, I'm the furthest thing from a formally trained business person. Um, but that said, this is a very technical, technical field. And you've got to deal with someone that's actually trained. You're more of the, uh, and I'm kind of jealous of you being in the, you know, me being here in Charlotte, North Carolina, we have, uh, you know, three watch, three real watch stores to go to, but you're right across the river with access to Manhattan and all their wonderful watch stores. And you, yeah, uh, you've even used some of those in your videos, you know, with access to some watches that, you know, most people can't see unless you live in LA, New York or Miami or Paris or London. Exactly. Uh, exactly. One of the one of the best things we were able to do in, in 2019, I, I guess it was last year, uh, was develop a relationship with a with a New York based authorized dealer named London Jewelers. And London Jewelers is uh, you know they, they, have, they have multiple brands. I mean basically basically all all brands and you can imagine Rolex and Paddock being the most famous. And and one of the best parts about that, that partnership was that we were able to actually get our hands on watches we wanted to review. You know when when your when your YouTube channel when your business is predicated upon, you know, reviewing yard equipment, 
you don't need a lot of money to begin to review that. You don't have equipment. But yeah. if your business is reviewing watches that cost tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars, it's very difficult without a partner, you know, without, <laughs> without, it, without someone that does that lot for a lot of work to, to, to review these pieces. So, so, you know, access is very important, and that's something that we've, you know, only recently been able to, you know, achieve, but, you know, now we're very grateful for it. So again, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna pimp your uh, I'm gonna pimp your YouTube channel. It's Theo and Harris. T H E O A N D H A R R I S. It's a great assortment of industry news, watch reviews, discussions that are all honest and straightforward and presented clearly. Uh, including some celebrity watch stuff, some new watches, old old watches. I mean, it, it's all really right there in one, and you know, and it's part. It's probably part of the reason why you have uh, a little bit over eighty thousand subscribers, which just blows my mind. And uh, some of your videos have what over a couple hundred thousand views now. Yeah, yeah, we're super lucky in that. I mean, we, we, we produce three videos a week, right? Which is which is a lot more than basically all of our colleagues, all of our competitors, and uh, and it allows us to be balanced in what we're releasing. Uh, you know, content is is one of the biggest parts of our business. You know, uh, most of you know traditionally this business is just straight retail and doing you know paid ads like billboards or like magazines. And one, I didn't have the budget for billboards or magazines, but two. You know, being a, a, a millennial, I, I really understood the value of, you know, actually owning your means of communication, right? So as opposed to paying for a magazine, why not just make my own? Why not make my own digital magazine, whatever it might be? And that's what we've done. So it's worked out very well. And then you also, on your website, which is also theoandharris.com, um, which I, I just have to a personal side. My nephew is uh, my nephew. My nephew's name is pronounced the Dutch way of Teo T H E O. So every time <laughs> I see your website, I get confused. He's <laughs> um, But I mean, you also part of the part of the fun of owning these watches is you can dress them up with different watch bands, and you've got those there. Plus, you've got watches for sale, and uh, and you wrote and and you move through them pretty quickly. So, if you see something on the website that you like, it's pretty much grab it then, because who knows when you might see another one, right? Yeah, the tough thing about vintage is, you know, because they're not being mass produced there anymore. You know, if you really like something, if, if you're ready, you gotta buy. You know, it's you can't really be indecisive. Again, if you're ready, if you're not ready, then I never recommend anyone, you know, buy anything, especially if something expensive. Um, but that's that's a big thing in the vintage watch culture. It, you know, it's not. Um, it's not manufactured scarcity. It's real scarcity. Yeah. You know, I, I can't really get a client another one of these things if they miss it. So, you know, a lot of our businesses all over the world, you know, we do, we do almost half of our business internationally. You know, Singapore, some of our best clients. And, and you know, I guess in different cultures, you know, uh, there's just a different norm as far as collecting. But uh, but America really is catching on. I mean, the vintage watch hobby has caught on like wildfire in the last uh, five years. So it's great. Yeah, even even to the point where some of those vintage watches are selling for fifteen million dollars. And uh, yeah, I was I, I was there. I was there oh, when, when the Paul Newman watch sold for eighteen million dollars. I mean, we couldn't. That was 
beyond the record. You yeah. know, I mean, we, the, the watch space, when you go to an auction, you know, you're not used to anything, you know, half a million dollars is, is huge in the watch space, as opposed to, just to give context, like the art space where, you know, 20 million is a low number. Um, you know, and, and so we, we would be at a watch auction and right next door in the same building, but, it, but you know, in the next room, there'd be an art auction auction that would put the watch numbers to shame. You know, watches were like child's play. Uh, <laughs> but now it's much different. You know, I was still smaller than art, but nonetheless, you know, this is really beginning to fascinate a lot of, you know, big time collectors. And I'll, and I'll just bring it back around to reality where you can, again, you can go back and get a good Omega three-handed Seamaster or older one for twelve fifteen hundred dollars and you can get a good old, yeah, I, I, you, can, you can get a good 34 millimeter Rolex Oyster for 2500 to 3000 and dress it yeah. up with different colored bands and you got, you got multiple absolutely, watches. Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. And, and that's, you know, the, the, the bands are a big thing. You know, you can buy a silver date just, right? And you can wear it on a, on, a, on a, you know, black strap to make it super formal. And you can wear it on a, you know, on a light, you can wear a black exotic and then a light brown calf. And it's, it's two different watches, you know. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's, a great, uh, it's a great way to make your collection feel a lot bigger than it is. And we'll we'll finish this up with just two uh, two pop questions for you, just so that people can get a taste of a little bit of your taste. Um, what is your current favorite watch that you own now? So, so my favorite watch will always will always be my Datejust. You know, I, that's that's a watch, especially as weird as it's been in quarantine, because I haven't been going out and meeting clients, and I usually don't wear my watches to meet clients. I usually wear the you know the watches in our store. I've been able to really bond with that watch again, so it's been, <laughs> it's been lovely. Uh, so it'll always be my favorite watch. That being said, uh, I, I recently acquired a really, a really phenomenal watch. It's called uh, the Cartier Crash. Right. So a quick little story. Um, there, there are multiple accounts. Uh, you know, I believe that in, in late 1960, 1967, uh, Cartier uh, took inspiration from Salvador Dali's painting uh, from 1930. I think it was called The Persistence of, of Memory, I believe. Uh, and it was the melting clocks. Right? It was all, it was all, the, it was all the, the melting clocks. Yeah. And, and in 1957, Cartier took that inspiration and developed their own watch. They called The Crash for, for a different reason. Uh, they made up an own story. It doesn't matter. But this watch is the most bizarre uh, design. It's totally abstract. You know, it's not it's not a square. It's not a circle. It's this melting uh, kind of elongated, you know, uh, uh, you know, shape that is unbelievable. Right? These watches are incredibly collectible. You know, now they're worth anywhere between you know sixty and two hundred thousand dollars. And I was lucky that I was lucky to acquire one. So we'll be we'll be finding a new uh, owner for that pretty soon. <laughs> I've seen pictures of the watch, and the and the best part for us is uh, Salvador Dali was an occasional pipe smoker. Um, Isn't that great? There you go. And tying in one of my other passions that everybody knows about is uh, Salvador Dali and Walt Disney got to be really good friends towards the end of Walt's life. So uh, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, in fact, there's been a couple of really good books out recently about uh, Dali and Disney and some of the collaborations that they were thinking of. Um, so interesting. All right. So now the next question: What is your dream watch? So really good question. So I, I deal in extremely expensive items all the time, 
And and naturally, it's tempting. You know, you think about, okay, you know, one day will will I indulge? You know, to the extent to which many of my clients indulge, and, and you don't know the answer to that question until you're actually ready to do it, right? Yeah. So so I I don't know if I will ever buy some of my dream watches. Uh, even, even finances aside, uh, whether or not you're able to afford it is different than if you want to buy it, right? So, but what are the watches that consistently uh, just I find myself in awe of is Langenzona's eighteen fifteen chronograph. Uh, to give you just a little bit of history, Langenzona, you know, was a traditional German watch manufacturer that was you know, crippled by by the war, by World War II, uh, to the point where they lost their entire identity, and then right after the war, they, they were forced to close. Right, and then in nineteen ninety one. Uh, Walter Lange, who was the great grandson of the, of the company's founder, uh, you know, back when the company was a real watch manufacturer, resurrected the company. Right, and in just the next nine years, that company became one of the most well-respected watch manufacturers in history. Right, it was a real, you know, it was a real uh, uh, kind of like a phoenix kind of story. You know, out, out of from nothing uh, came this top player. So yeah. I'm so. I'm so impressed by that story. I find it so incredible and poetic almost and it's inspiring. So Longa is a brand uh, that, that I just, that I absolutely adore. And here's a perfect example of an educated consumer because on my side, I absolutely love the stuff Longa does just with the, with the standard Grand Longa. And mm -hmm. I keep looking at the Glashuta Originals, which are modeled oh, yeah. after longa and i keep thinking well yeah. i could buy one of those on the on the pre-owned yeah. market but then every time i'd yeah. look at it i'd think it's not a longa it's the substitute i'll wait until i can get the real one I know it, it, it's always tough. I mean, you know, I, I, watch watch fanatics are torn on the subject. I personally you know, have no problem with the quote unquote substitute. The, the glass suit originals, you know, it's called the it's called the Panamatic Lunar or Panamatic Reserve. That is one of the best watches, dollar for dollar, particularly in the pre owned market. You're talking about around seven grand, and you're getting, I'd say, thirteen thousand dollars in value for around seven maybe more than thirteen yeah. uh and it, that to me is such an uh, almost an obvious buy but of course when you look down you know you don't see originality but you see such fine such fine detailing architecture that it's impossible to not be impressed christian thank you very much for coming on thank you very much for the for the youtube channel and the website everybody check him out i highly recommend it well, thank you so much for having me. This was a pleasure. And I'm going to pick your brain about pipes. Like I told yeah. I promise. Yep, yeah, we will. And that has been uh, Food for Thought.